presentations that uh, ISGAP is putting together, my view of the importance that the Columbia community have an opportunity to hear this by the fact that um, I arrived an hour and a half ago at JFK Airport, several hours late from a flight from Tel Aviv. Uh, my flight made it the, on El Al, the United flights didn't make it. You take whatever lesson from that that you want. Uh, but uh, it was literally, I didn't even get to, I got to change this part of my clothes, but not the inner part of my clothes in order to get here in time. And, uh, that, that represents a serious level of commitment. I'm very uh, glad that we were able to have this series of lectures uh, and presentations and discussions on the Columbia campus. Uh, Charles and his group do important uh, work exploring very important issues, uh, and I've been very glad to be associated with it. With that, and we'll let you next time. Next time, I will uh, figure the content. So, so, Professor Stone, thank you. And without Professor Stone's uh, support, we would not be here. So we're especially grateful. And thank you very much for uh, rushing over today from the, the airport. It's not, not fun. Um, so, Professor, we have today, as I was saying, Professor Gordon and Dan Niekman. Professor Gordon is the director of the University of North Dakota Center for Human Rights and Genocide Studies. He teaches courses in criminal law, criminal procedure, comparative law, international law and international human rights law. He did his first degree, um, his bachelor's degree and his, his doctorate degree at the University of California at Berkeley. He was a litigator in San Francisco and worked at the office of the prosecutor of international, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where he served as a legal, legal officer and deputy team leader for Landmark Media case um, the first international post-Nuremberg prosecutions of radio and print media uh, executives for incitement to genocide. For his work, Professor Gordon received many uh, commendations, including from the Attorney, Attorney General Jana Reno for service to the United States and for international justice. His resume <coughs> is long and extraordinarily impressive. He's been around the world speaking on these issues. And I will say I know this from, uh, from my research, my work on, on the ideology of the Iranian revolutionary regime, much of the material that leading eminent scholars and public officials from uh, Alan Dershowitz to Erwin Kotler to Elie Wiesel is the, the, the brains behind a lot of the work that was done on incitement to genocide is from Professor Gordon. So his contribution to these debates uh, of incitement have been of the utmost importance internationally. Uh, so it's a particular uh, pleasure and an honor to continue my association with uh, Professor Gordon. Uh, Professor Gordon will speak first. When he's done, uh, we'll have a lecture and a Q&A, and then Professor Dan Michman will speak. Professor Michman just arrived also from, from Israel. Professor Michman is the head of the International Institute for Holocaust Research um, and the incumbent of the John Najman Chair of Holocaust Studies. He's at Bar-Ilan University, and now he's the head of research uh, at Yad Vashem, the Institute of Research at Yad, Yad Vashem. So his academic qualifications on, on the history of genocide, the Holocaust, which is very much related, of course, to the issues of anti-Semitism, is of uh, great importance. So we have two extraordinarily scholars. Professor Michman, who was originally from Amsterdam, uh, migrated to Israel in 1947, 
and um, his father Joseph Michman was appointed the general director at Yad Vashem. Uh, the, was he the first general director at Yad Vashem? Your father. Second. But I migrated in 57. I was 57. Born in 47. Okay. <laughs> I see. Sorry. Born in 47, migrated in 57. Uh, after his military service in Israel, he studied Jewish history um, and Hebrew linguistics at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, where he earned his doctorate in 1978 and wrote a dissertation on Jewish refugees from Germany and from the Netherlands, 1933 to 1940. In 1976, he joined the faculty of the Department of Jewish History at Bar-Ilan University, where he's been teaching and researching the field of modern Jewish history in general, and the Shoah or the Holocaust in particular. In the 1980s, he also devised a comprehensive academic course on Shoah history for the Open University in Israel, which was translated into other languages, including Spanish and Russian. Professor Michman has published many books and articles in a variety of languages, on the history of Dutch and Belgium Jewelry, Israeli society, and, uh, and mostly on various aspects of the Holocaust Shoah, historiography, the history of ghettos, religious life in Europe before the Holocaust, um, and the like. Professor Miefman has been involved with the Anderson scholarly and educational activities since the early 1980s, and is on the edit editorial board of the Anderson since the mid-1990s and he served as their chief historian from 2000 to 2011. So it's really a great honor to have both of you here. So Professor Gordon. Thank you very much. for organizing this and Professor Stone for uh, allowing us to do it here at Columbia. It's an honor to be here, um, especially to uh, be on the same bill with Professor Mishman. I'm, I'm very uh, pleased and honored. Um, I, I come from the state of North Dakota and um, I figured, you know, I had to go to a place, if I left North Dakota, that would be better for snow. Um, and of course, what happens, I bring the snow with me. So I'm feeling very much at home here. Um, and I say that partially uh, in jest, but partially as well because I'm going to talk about North Dakota today. A lot of my scholarship, as Charles points out, is about uh, international criminal law, and in particular, international hate speech law. Um, and today, I thought it would be interesting to focus on what's going on in the United States, in particular uh, in the middle parts of the U.S. Um, and so I wanted to begin by sort of setting the context a little bit. A lot of what ISCAP does um, relates to, if you will, the new anti-Semitism, um, which consists of communicating socially, uh, and I put this in quotes, acceptable Jew hatred via attacks on Israel throughout the world. But of course, old anti-Semitism continues to thrive, if you will, in ISCAP's home country here in the United States via various uh, neo-Nazi groups, including the National Socialist Movement, and perhaps most prominently the National Socialist Movement, and the creativity religion, among others, which I'll talk about today. This threat, in my opinion, has been magnified by what's known as the Pioneer Little Europe Movement, which seeks to establish mutually supportive, all-white supremacist enclaves that would, of course, exclude Jews, blacks, and other minorities throughout the United States. And as this lecture is part of the anti-Semitism in Comparative Perspective series, um, I believe it's fitting that we explore this problem uh, along with all the international ones uh, that uh, even I've spoken about uh, on behalf of both ISCAP and NISA when uh, Dr. Small was at Yale. Um, 
this movement that I was talking about, this pioneer little Europe movement, um, has attempted to buy properties in small municipalities uh, in the United States and take over governance of them. And Leith, North Dakota, in my home state, has been the recent focus of one such effort that has garnered a lot of publicity. It's actually made international headlines. There was recently a feature on it uh, on the BBC. Um, and so this presentation is going to be a case study of that attempted takeover. And uh, I want to talk about what it means, sort of situated historically to some extent. Um, uh, where do we uh, consider this movement to fit into broader themes of anti-Semitism, but um, also, um, as I am a law professor, I want to talk about some of the legal implications. And in particular, um, I want to talk about whether there are steps that we might be able to take uh, to prevent something like this happening. Um, and might we be proactive? I mean, it's one thing uh, if a neo-Nazi movement can take over an entire town and govern it. Um, that's a terrible prospect. But are there things that we could do to prevent that, if you will, nip it in the bud? And that raises other legal issues, sticky legal issues. So there are no really easy answers here, but I want to raise the questions, and then hopefully we can talk a little bit about what those answers might be, or at least what some of the implications might be um, uh, in the Q&A. So an overview of what I want to cover today. I want to talk about the rise of the National Socialist Movement, which is that big party that I was talking about here in the US, and the Creativity Movement, uh, another one of the uh, major groups uh, in the United States um, within the American heartland. And then how the little pioneer uh, Europe movement, or pioneer little Europe movement, is attempting to sort of spread that ideology and gain a foothold in individual municipalities in the country. <coughs> then specifically focus it on Leith, North Dakota, as a case study, um, and then talk about the legal issues that, that are raised by that, problems, potential solutions, um, and then sort of conclude with why I think this issue is so important. So let's start with the creativity movement. Um, the creativity movement is the latest of several uh, incarnations of uh, the racist group and religion originally known, and I say religion, I put that in quotation marks, as the church of the creator. I say that in quotation marks because it is actually a legal issue as to whether it's a religion, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. This group was founded in 1973 by a neo-Nazi by the name of Ben Classen, and the movement promotes what it sees as the inherent superiority uh, and, if you will, creativity, as they see it, of the white race. Um, and frankly, about the only tenets in this supposed theology, um, which includes the fact that Jews and non-whites are, are mud races, in, in the words of, of the movement, um, they believe that these, quote, mud races are um, trying to sub subjugate whites uh, and destroy, and, and, and what they want to do is counter that and destroy and banish all Jewish thought and influence from our society. That's a quotation from... Uh, one of its founding texts. We see the white man's Bible featured here. Um, interesting how a lot of these neo-Nazis uh, end up either in jail or in uh, graves at an early age. Uh, Klassen, not a, an exception, he committed suicide in 1993, uh, and at that point the Church of the Creator almost uh, 
went extinct. But in 1995, Matt Hale from Peoria, Illinois, came in, resurrected the group, uh, and changed its name to the World Church of the Creator, uh, and in the process gave himself the title of Pontifex Maximus, uh, or High Priest. Um, Mr. Hale uh, was involved in a federal court copyright battle over his group's name, which a non-racist church, church in the Pacific Northwest had previously trademarked. And eventually, Judge Joan Lefkow, who was married to a Jewish man, uh, ruled in the non-racist church's behalf, which apparently infuriated Hale enough uh, to suggest to the group's security chief, uh, who turned out to be an, a federal informant, unfortunately, for Hale, that he murdered the judge. Um, and the following year, Hale was convicted of one count of solicitation of murder, three counts of obstruction of justice. He received a 40-year federal prison sentence, and once again, the church was on the verge of collapse. Um, what was left of it was renamed the Creativity Movement because obviously they couldn't use uh, the name uh, that Hale had come up with, the World Church of the Creator. And then interestingly, a, somewhat of a side note, and I'll come back to it though, uh, because it does have some relevance to, to what we're talking about here. A year after this, uh, Judge Lefkow's husband and mother were murdered after a break-in, and many creativity adherents had been calling for Judge Lefkow to be murdered and gave her address out on the internet. Um, it turned out that it seems that the murderer in this case was someone not related to the creativity movement, but obviously this was a scary thing. And I'm gonna be talking about Craig Cobb, and Craig Cobb was one of the most vocal people out there saying, here's the address, go out and kill. I also mentioned the National Socialist Movement. Let's talk about that for a moment. It's one of the largest and most prominent neo-Nazi groups in the US. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center has reported that it has 61 chapters in 35 states. Um, it's notable for its violent anti-Jewish rhetoric, its racist views, its provocative protests, uh, including at places such as Rosa Parks' funeral, uh, and its policy allowing members of other racist groups to join the National Socialist Movement while remaining members of other groups. And I think this is an important point that I'm going to come back to later in terms of why this is so important is that the NSM is acting as somewhat of an umbrella group in trying to bring together what is otherwise a set of disparate groups under one umbrella, and, and that's a little bit scary. Um, for almost three decades after it was founded in 1974, uh, the NSM was sort of in the background. Uh, it was uh, obscured by more prominent groups such as the National Alliance and the Aryan Nations. Um, and then later by the World Church of the Creator. But while those groups uh, eventually uh, became weakened and uh, either died or became other groups, uh, the National Socialist Movement has thrived, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about why. Um, first of all, we can look at its background. It really is, uh, in many ways, uh, the successor of the original uh, American Nazi Party, which most of you in this room probably uh, are aware was founded by uh, former Navy Commander George Lincoln Rockwell uh, in 1959. Um, seven years uh, after Rockwell was murdered by one of his followers in 1967, another untimely demise, uh, two of his chief lieutenants, Robert Brannon and Cliff Harrington, formed the National Socialist American Workers Freedom Movement in St. Paul, Minnesota. And North Dakota, of course, being right next to Minnesota, uh, we're starting to get close to uh, where I live, and, and, and I think that it's related. 
leadership passed ultimately to a guy named uh, Jeff Scoop, who you see uh, in the bottom photo. Uh, in 1994, he renamed the group the National Socialist Movement. And the reason that the group has been, been able to thrive so much, Scoop is young, and his goal was to get younger people involved, because a lot of the older Nazis, the ones that had sort of come into the movement around the time of Rockwell, were dying out, um, and he wanted to revitalize it. So really in 2004, uh, he starts to do a lot of things uh, in that regard. Um, you have the, the, the death of two of the major neo-Nazi leaders. Uh, as I mentioned, the National Alliance, which had been quite prominent. Uh, William Pierce, he led them. Uh, he died. And then Richard Butler, who led the Aryan, Aryan Nations uh, in this time period. Scoop was only 21 years old. And um, because of his young age, he was able to attract people who were similarly young. Um, and in fact, the NSM formed a special youth division called the Viking Youth Corps uh, and really felt that that was its future and so started to recruit heavily and did things that would attract younger people. It launched a, a women's division. Uh, we see Scoop's wife here uh, on the left uh, trying to uh, make it more, if you will, uh, attractive or sexy to be a Nazi. Uh, it, it, it bolstered its online presence. It, it got with modern technology, uh, website, uh, social uh, media, um, had a, a downloadable newsletter, um, and then started to uh, create chapters around the country. Even created its own hate rock music label known as NSM 88 Records, 88 being the number of the letters HH, right? H is the eighth letter in the alphabet, uh, to signify Heil Hitler. And in April 2007, it purchased uh, a very popular uh, white supremacist social networking site called New Saxon. So it really branched into all kinds of electronic media, trying to appeal to younger people, and it really uh, became quite popular. The ideology of the NSM uh, is, is similar, of course, to the creativity movement uh, and the original American Nazi party. Um, it idolizes openly Adolf Hitler. Um, who is described in his propaganda as our Fuhrer, the beloved Holy Father of our age, a visionary in every respect. Um, and it calls for a greater America that would deny citizenship to Jews, non-whites, and homosexuals. The NSM, of course, is trying to operate throughout the country, but it is particularly active uh, and vocal um, in the Midwest. A lot of its activity is focused there. Um, and the group, for example, made, I, I talked about how it has these provocative rallies and protests, made national headlines um, after a march, planned march, uh, through a black neighborhood in Toledo uh, and sparked a race riot that cost the city more than $336,000. Um, and when African Americans in Toledo complained uh, and used uh, not very flattering language about Scoop, uh, he came back in the press and said, see, uh, they're just subhuman, and, and this is the way they act. So he tries to take advantage, he tries to get people riled up, uh, and then uses that to promote his ideology. Minnesota, where, as I noted, the group was founded, uh, has also been the scene of NSM rallies, uh, including, quite notoriously, book burnings, uh, trying to glorify uh, what they see as one of the great activities of the Third Reich. And I have a couple of images from uh, these book burnings. Um, we can see, of course, uh, that books about Judaism and related to Jews 
as we would expect at a Nazi book-burning rally, uh, were <coughs> featured prominently in those uh, fires. Um, we see here, it's a little bit hard to see, but uh, here's a book about Israel. Um, and uh, these, these were taking place uh, you know, in, in, in one of the most cosmopolitan cities uh, in the Midwest. Uh, pretty scary sight. But it shows, the, if you will, the power that this group had in attracting people uh, and, and raising its visibility. <coughs> now, the, the other element that I want to add to this is the Pioneer Little Europe movement. And so, if you will, we sort of have the creativity movement, we have the NSM, and then, if you will, with the Pioneer Little Europe movement, um, we have the combined neo-Nazi movement, if you will, trying to branch out and, and take root in individual communities. The idea of a little a Pioneer Little Europe movement was first proposed in a 2001 <coughs> pamphlet by H. Michael Barrett, um, which this pamphlet was called the Pioneer Little Europe Prospectus, which envisioned uh, consolidating white residents in existing cities and towns and actively repelling racial minorities. Uh, the movement has been based primarily in Montana, where its leader, April Gade, has implored fellow white supremacists to move to Montana and create these uh, other communities. And a prominent member of the NSF, who resided in Montana, and if you will, has sort of combined both the NSM uh, and the creativity movement and the pioneer little Europe movement into one community. Uh, movement is a guy named Craig Cobb. And so I'm going to talk about Craig Cobb, uh, because as you see, he's going to have uh, a, a, a connection to North Dakota. And the, the way that we in North Dakota found out about Craig Cobb was that somebody was buying up properties in this tiny town called Leith, North Dakota. At the time, population 19. These were just being bought up sight unseen. Um, and uh, the person uh, ended up purchasing more than a dozen lots uh, for peanuts, really, a few hundred dollars each, mostly from landowners who lived elsewhere in the country. And this person ended up being uh, Craig Paul Cobb, who was 61 years old, uh, as I say, a neo-Nazi, who'd been part of the National Socialist Movement, part of the Creativity Movement. Uh, he moved into one of these properties himself, uh, one that he purchased for 5000 so one of the more luxurious properties, actually. Uh, and uh, it was a two-story ramshackle uh, building, if you will, uh, without running water. Uh, but this is where he decided that he was going to uh, start his own Pioneer Little Europe movement uh, in North Dakota. And he started to announce on white supremacist online forums that he intended to build this all-white, non-Jewish enclave of racists uh, in my state, um, Pioneer Little Europe, um, and of course, you know, places like Montana, Idaho, uh, now North Dakota, these are considered appealing places because, quite frankly, uh, their populations tend to be less <coughs> racially diverse. Okay? I mean, this is not, uh, the demographics in North Dakota are not quite what they are in New York City. Um, and so, um, this was the place that he, he saw um, and figured that he could bring in enough of his fellow racists to outnumber the longtime residents and thereby take over city government and claimed that he would call this new entity Cobbsville. Um, let me talk a little bit about Cobb. Um, he was uh, reportedly born in 1951 uh, to a well-to-do family 
Uh, the BBC feature that I just uh, saw about him stated that his father was a millionaire. Um, don't know if that's true or not, but, but it was clearly well-to-do. Uh, he was an architect and a land developer, his mother an elementary school teacher. There probably weren't really any clues that he would become the monster uh, that he's become. Uh, he went to private boarding school in Boston, uh, where he graduated in 1968, and somewhere along the way, uh, for unknown reasons, uh, he formed a favorable impression of uh, George Lincoln Rockwell uh, and former Third Reich deputy for Fuhrer uh, Rudolf Hess, and he began to embrace white supremacist ideology. <coughs> uh, and then su supposedly he served in the armed forces in Edmonton, Canada for a few years. He has had a connection to Canada, which I'm going to talk about in a, f in a few moments. Um, and then he relocated to Hawaii, uh, where he lived for several years. Um, in Hawaii, uh, he supposedly earned a living as a taxi driver. He claimed to have had Barack Obama as a passenger in his cab. Claims that President Obama told him that he was not born in the United States. Um, you have to take that with a major grain of salt. Um, in 2003, he moved to Frost, West Virginia. So he, he had a fairly peripatetic existence um, where he opened up a grocery store and subsequently registered a business called Gray's Store Aryan Autographs and 14 Words LLC. And during this time, he was allegedly involved in interstate deliveries of a neo-Nazi newspaper published by Alex Linder, who was the founder and current operator of a white power online anti-Semitic forum called Vanguard News Network, or VNN. We're going to see Mr. Linder come up again in a moment as well. Um, he also supposedly distributed Project Schoolyard CDs to local children. This was hate music that was distributed to middle and high school kids. So he was quite active. Uh, in promoting his ideology. Eventually, in 2005, he moves to Tallinn, Estonia, where he is reported to have established a video sharing service for white supremacists called Pod Blanc that allowed him to record himself issuing racist rants. In fact, if you go back a couple of slides here, um, that is a, an image from Pod Blanc where he would be issuing one of his racist rants. Um, uh, he reportedly uh, interacted while he was there with white power skinheads and purchased land 30 miles south of the capital where he allegedly hoped to establish an international office of white diaspora. And it's interesting, he goes to Estonia to do this, right? It sounds somewhat familiar and is kind of, kind of foreshadows what he's gonna to try to do in North Dakota. But interestingly, the Estonians, their laws are a little bit different and they can take legal action against him and say, no, you're not doing this, we're gonna deport you. And they actually have him um, deported to Canada uh, in connection with what they perceived as his racist speech and activities there. So obviously in Europe, and this foreshadows a little bit about what I'm going to talk about um, when I talk about potential problems to the solution, they can take a proactive approach uh, to dealing with someone like this, and we don't have those, uh, we don't have that ability here in the United States necessarily. Same thing with Canada. So Cobb moves to Vancouver. He, reportedly continues his online racist and anti-Semitic activities, and then the Canadians charge him with willful, willful promotion of hatred uh, for his internet endeavors. He flees Canada before he could be brought to trial. Now let me just mention that the Canadians um, have uh, a law, it's in their, part of their criminal law, where they can uh, actually prosecute somebody for incitement um, to racial hatred uh, or promotion of hatred against an identifiable group. And they have a landmark case, Regina versus Keekstra, uh, from 1990, which I'm sure Dr. Small is quite familiar with, which stated that this was constitutional under uh, the Canadian 
uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So it's, it's fine in, in Canada to prosecute somebody for uh, engaging in the kind of hate speech that Cobb was. I would also note, just, just by way of uh, giving you a little more context and to tie this up to what I'm going to talk about later, that Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act prohibits the communication of messages that likely would expose a person to hatred or contempt based on race, national, ethnic origin, color, religion, age, sex, sexual orientation, marital status, family status, and disability, among others, and provides for injunctions and money damages. However, interestingly, the Canadians voted last year to repeal that statute, uh, and it will no longer be in effect after June 2014. So it's interesting that the civil statute, uh, which in some ways is less, um, uh, you know, less serious in terms of the kind of action that could be taken against someone like Cobb, that is being repealed, but the more serious criminal statute is still in effect. The bottom line is, Cobb is going to be prosecuted uh, under the incitement provision, and instead of waiting for that to happen, he, he flees. Comes to the United States. And he goes to Montana's Flathead Valley, uh, where you have a lot of these uh, people who are promoting the Pioneer Little Europe movement, uh, including uh, Christian identity proponent Carl Garst and uh, April Gage, who I mentioned before. Um, and then Cobb, because Montana's right next to North Dakota, hears about the oil patch. This is this incredible economic activity that is taking place in the western part of the state. Most of you by now probably have heard about it. Um, North Dakota is making tremendous amounts of money uh, through um, uh, oil uh, exploration and uh, drilling in the western part of the state. Cobb figures, I can go over there and I can make some money. Um, and he starts to work on road construction crews. Reportedly, he was terminated from, from a job like that. Um, and then he thought, you know, he's in the area of western North Dakota. He starts to look around, and he discovers Leith, North Dakota. And he gets it in his head that he can start his Pioneer Little Europe movement in North Dakota in the town of Leith. Now, Leith is a town in Grant County, population 16 uh, for the 2010 census. I, I've seen different reports, 16, 19. Um, reportedly, there are 24 living there now, uh, minus Cobb's uh, neo-Nazi friends. Bobby Harper, who lives right across an alleyway from Cobb, and who we see right here, uh, is the only black resident in the town, and he's married to a white woman. You see his wife with him there. Uh, and he stated that you know he was prepared to tolerate Cobb as long as he kept to himself. But he's angry now that Cobb has invited him uh, invited other white racists to join uh, him and to form Cobbsville, and he feels scared and threatened, uh, as does his wife. Um, there have been reports that Cobb put a, uh, uh, a leaflet on their door uh, addressed to the wife saying, you know, um, how could you be married to a nigger? Uh, you know, what's wrong with you? Um, and so this was not a very comfortable situation for them or anybody else in Leith, because while North Dakota might be fairly homogenous in terms of its population. Um, I am proud to say, as a North Dakotan right now, um, that it does not have any tolerance for racism. And I've seen that as a result of this. Um, I've been a commentator on uh, NPR for this um, and, and other news outlets, and I've had occasion to talk to people about it a lot. And there is definitely a sense of solidarity that this is not what we want in North Dakota. And so um, that's the, the residents of Leith 
we're, we're, we're not very happy about this. And in fact, we're scared. Why? Well, because Cobb started to succeed in his plan. Um, he sold property to Tom Metzger, uh, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, who now leads a group known as War, White Aryan Resistance. Uh, he purchased a, a lot from Cobb for $1 in June 2012. Four months later, Alex Linder, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who runs VNN, did the same thing. Um, Cobb claims to have donated buildings to the National Socialist Movement, uh, run by Jeff Scoop, who we talked about earlier. And according to a posting on a hate site called Stormfront in August, April Gade and her husband Mark Harrington also now own property in Leaf, North Dakota. So you have this tremendous concentration of some of the leaders, the top leaders in the neo-Nazi movement in the United States, all you know within Leaf, North Dakota. And Cobb has even <laughs> reportedly said that he wants to transfer property to the Greek ultranationalist political party Golden Dawn and to the infamous David Duke, another Klansman and Louisiana state representative. So North Dakotans were not happy about this. I mean, and, and, and Cobb, Cobb was, it looked like succeeding. Um, he, he's been posting on uh, online forum, uh, the online forum White Nations, uh, trying to get even more white supremacists to come. He's talked about the great economic situation in North Dakota, the availability of jobs due to the oil and gas boom, um, and how close it is to Dickinson, which is where a lot of the activity is taking place. Um, and he's even posted pictures of his plans for the town, including one showing a site where he intends to create Dr. William L. Pierce Private Park of Leith in honor of a longtime leader of the neo-Nazi National Alliance, who I mentioned earlier. Things started to come to a head in September, the end of September. On September 22nd, about 400 people converged on Leith to protest uh, Cobb's plan, and um, it was this was organized by a group called Unite ND, um, uh, created by a group called Anti-Racist Action. And of course, it was not a coincidence that they showed up on September 22nd, because this was when Jeff Scoop, uh, the NSM leader, was supposed to come in and have a rally in support of Cobb's plans. He brought uh, a bunch of Nazis into town. They had a rally. There was a counter-rally. Uh, and so it's kind of a classic NSM situation. Scoop actually addressed a letter to Leith Mayor Ryan Schock before the visit where he warned residents against standing up to the NSM and Cobb's plan. And I quote him, Craig Cobb will not be ousted from the community, Scoop wrote. He's not breaking any laws or ordinances. He has a right to reside in Leith just as any other American does. We are not asking you or any other residents of Leith to change whatever political stands you may or may not have. If anything, you should see this for what it is, a chance at revitalizing the community and a chance to be neighborly to your new neighbors and vice versa. So on the surface, he's got a point. Why can't anybody in the United States come into a community and you know, if, if a person's not committing physical acts of violence, um, say whatever he or she wants on the streets of, of that town, uh, wear swastikas, uh, fly the Nazi flag, um, have parades uh, lauding Adolf Hitler. Why not? There, there, there's nothing on the surface that's, that, that appears to be wrong with this. That said, the, the, the elite citizens did not want to put up with this. They, they built a website uh, to spread the word about what they called a crisis. That, that website is still up. Um, I quote them, in the coming days, weeks, and months, we, the citizens, will endeavor 
to present a more realistic point of view as to our moral fiber and ties to the community, a welcome message uh, to the website says. It sought donations to deal with lawsuits that were threatened by Cobb uh, if his rights were violated. Um, and county health officials condemned Cobb's ramshackle home because he had no running water. Um, and the town also established a legal fund to help fight lawsuits, as it mentioned in its website, uh, because Cobb claimed that his civil rights were being violated. Um, there was even talk of dissolving the town so it could be incorporated into the county, and therefore Cobb would not be able to take over the government. And then Leith passed some ordinances to deal with Cobb, and there were some funny moments when Cobb, Cobb would come into the uh, meetings where the city council uh, was talking about these ordinances, and you know, there were these angry confrontations. We see uh, an image of that right here. Um, and in late October, they approved a moratorium on any new construction in the town. Another ordinance uh, that they approved uh, prevented tents and campers from being set up on a city lot for more than 10 consecutive days. A lot of the uh, neo-Nazis that Cobb wanted to come in uh, were, were bringing in trailers and tents, and so this would stop that. Um, and Cobb, you know, again, superficially, he's got a point. He called these ordinances patently unfair and said residents of the town were evil and nasty. Why that, uh, he wanted to know. Uh, is it a wonderful coincidence that the moment I show up, these measures are necessary? So it does raise some interesting issues, which, which I do want to discuss with you. Let me give you a little bit of a postscript to this. This, this part's a little bit funny. In November, Cobb appeared on the Trisha show, uh, hosted by black television personality Trisha Goddard. And as part of the show, he agreed to submit to a DNA test, which revealed that he was 14% sub-Saharan African. Th wow. This was shown on the show. In fact, you can see here, she's trying to go up and, and give him like a, you know, a black, um, you know, um, greeting. Yeah, greeting and fist, fist bump. And he, he, was, he was not having any part of it. Um, and then he came back to leave. And he's sort of disgraced by this, and a lot of people in town were, were making fun of him. So he got pretty angry. And on November 16th, he and uh, one of the neo-Nazis he brought into town, Keenan Dutton, uh, were taken into custody and charged with the crime of terrorizing after residents called police to report the men had confronted them with a rifle and a shotgun. And you can go on YouTube and see films of them going around town uh, uttering slurs and, and threatening residents. Um, and his bail was set at a million dollars. It's since been reduced, but he hasn't been able to post bond, um, and he's awaiting trial. Dutton pled guilty to a series of misdemeanors, and he's been released on probation, presumably to testify against Cobb. Cobb then sued the Attorney General of North Dakota, uh, Wayne Stengem, uh, because Stengem stated on radio uh, that white supremacists, Craig Cobb and his supporters, are not the kind of people wanted in North Dakota, and he claimed that this violated his rights to practice his religion of creativity. So, we get to the part of all the legal issues that I've been hinting at that are raised by this. Let's assume Cobb had not been arrested for terrorizing Leith residents with his firearm. The question is, can anything else have been done legally to prevent the little pioneer neo-Nazi takeovers of towns such as Leith? What if Cobb ultimately succeeds in taking over town governance or other neo-Nazis in other towns? What can be done legally to protect minorities who might be affected? Um, and if current law cannot bring minorities in such or cannot protect minorities in such places, should the law be changed? And that's 
what I want to talk about as I, as I wrap up here. The, the legal topics that are implicated before he takes over the town, in my opinion, are certain housing laws, civil rights laws, freedom of expression, free exercise of religion, and let's start with housing laws. <coughs> Last month, the city attorney declared that Cobb's house could not be condemned. Remember, I said it was condemned. Uh, despite the fact that there was no sewage or, or running water, it was declared uninhabitable. Um, it seems like the building moratorium and the tent and trail ordinance are going to stand up. But what if Cobb were wealthy? What if he could buy properties that had none of these problems? Um, that would not be an option, right? I mean, that's just this particular situation. Um, and then he would be able to bring in as many people as he needed. He could have them live in homes that were fine. And then he could take over town governments, in theory. What about civil rights laws? I mean, as far as I know, no civil rights law appears to prevent a neo-Nazi or other hate group from buying up properties, threatening to exclude Jews, blacks, or other minorities, and taking over municipal governance. So despite the fact that town residents are feeling terrorized by this prospect, there doesn't seem to be really anything that can be done. And then a topic that's near and dearer to my heart, freedom of expression. Now, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution declares that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, press, the right of peaceful assembly, and to petition the government for redress of grievances, one of our most powerful constitutional provisions. But I would note that in Szaplinski versus New Hampshire from 1942, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that fighting words are not accorded First Amendment protection and defined them to include words which are likely to incite an immediate fight and words which inflict injury. And then in Boharnay versus Illinois from 1952, the court upheld an Illinois law making it illegal to publish or exhibit any writing or picture portraying the depravity, criminality, unchastity, or lack of virtue of a class of citizens of any race, color, creed, or religion. In 1949, the case of Terminiello versus Chicago uh, raised some really important issues and had an impact on this fighting words document a doctrine, a very important one. The court held that to constitute fighting words, it was no longer enough that the speaker's words made the listeners angry, rather incitement to violence was now required. And we know from the Brandenburg test from 1969, Brandenburg versus Ohio, that their incitement will not be found unless the speaker intended to incite to imminent lawless violence and the words are reasonably likely to incite to imminent lawless violence. So that's a tough standard. Um, Terminiello, in that case, viciously criticized certain political and religious groups, and the crowd, which was upset by his comments, could not be controlled by the police. The police arrested him for breach of the peace, but the Supreme Court ultimately overturned his conviction, and it held the vitality of civil and political institutions in our society depends on free discussion. Free speech is supposed to incite dispute and is often provocative and challenging while it presses for acceptance. The most valuable expression may well be that which, because it is provocative and challenging, produces these emotions. Therefore, a state may not punish a person for arousing a crowd to act violently simply by initiating a public dispute. So this is akin, in other words, to the heckler's veto. Court doesn't want that to, to reign where members of the audience gain the right to silence any speaker with whom they disagree. Of course, I have to bring up the Nazi march in Skokie. Um, and in the case of Skokie versus National Socialist Party from Illinois in 1978, um, an especially strong case 
disallowed a fighting words rationale, even in circumstances of extreme provocation and targeted insult, despite, despite Szyplinski. And in that case, a Nazi group planned to demonstrate in Skokie, a predominantly Jewish community, and about 5,000 of, 5, of its residents were survivors of concentration camps. Just before the scheduled demonstration, the village enacted several ordinances designed to neutralize the demonstration, including one forbidding the dissemination of any materials which promote or incite racial or religious hatred. And the court held that there was simply no principled way of distinguishing between this situation and speech that stirs listeners to unrest or anger, speech was, which was explicitly protected in cases like Termin Yellow. So because of cases like Termin Yellow, the Nazis could march in Skokie and really terrorize uh, these concentration camp survivors and, and members of the Jewish community. I would note as well the 2003 ruling in Virginia versus Black. The issue presented there was whether the Commonwealth of Virginia's cross-burning statute, which prohibits the burning of a cross with the intent of intimidating any person or group of persons, violated the First Amendment. Um, and the court found yes, but in a plurality opinion delivered by Justice O'Connor, held that while a state consistent with the First Amendment may ban cross-burning carried out with intent to intimidate, the provision of Virginia statute treating any cross-burning as prima facie evidence of intent to intimidate renders the statute unconstitutional in its current form. That said, I contend that Virginia v. Black might show that the court is loosening up a little bit and that it might be willing to return more to Chaplinsky and away from Termin Yellow. And so I think that's important because of what I'm now about to suggest. Let me, the, the last point I want to make related to free exercise of, of religion. Is the creativity movement a religion? There have been two cases on this, two federal court cases uh, dealing with it. One is a Title VII case, which found that an employee who claimed that he was discriminated against uh, under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, that he was uh, exercising a religion uh, in, within the terms of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that's uh, Peterson versus Wilmer Communications from Wisconsin in 2002. But in Connor versus Tilton, uh, a, a case from the Northern District of California, it was found that creativity did not qualify as a religion for First Amendment <coughs> purposes. Let me emphasize that that opinion was not published, whereas Peterson was. So given that the only published judicial opinion on this issue finds that creativity is a religion under the law, Neo-Nazi adherents can potentially use it as a sword for pursuing litigation against government officials who make statements or take action against their neo-Nazi initiatives, and case in point, the lawsuit that was filed against Wayne Stengen in the state of North Dakota. So, uh, this, all this is what happens if before the takeover, right? The takeover is being planned, they're buying up properties, they're gonna take over city government, and they're going to create this all-white enclave where Jews and blacks are not welcome. If they succeed in doing that, I don't think anybody in this room would be surprised to find out that they're going to have all kinds of legal problems and that they're going to be stopped from doing it. Right? Title, among other things, Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin in programs and activities receiving federal financial assistance. And it doesn't take much, and LEAF probably in some indirect way uh, receives it. And even if not, um, uh, with respect to the property that Cobb would own, if you continue to buy up properties, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, in other words, the Fair Housing Act, renders it unlawful to discriminate in the sale or rental of housing because of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. 
Even the state of North Dakota has remedies post-takeover. If, again, Cobb refused to sell uh, because of uh, the protected group status that I mentioned before, the North Dakota Housing Discrimination Act would, would take effect. And the North Dakota Human Rights Act forbids adverse discrimination in the provision of public accommodations or services based on race, color, religion, all the other ones that we just talked about. The problem is that there's really nothing that can be done during the takeover. And what even after the takeover, what would probably have to happen is litigation would have to be initiated, and that could take time. In the meantime, people like Bobby Harper, you know, the, the African American living in Leith, have to put up with this. And at the same time, Cobb and his adherents can file lawsuits claiming that any action against them is discriminating against them on the basis of their religion. So, I think the law should be amended. I'm going to propose something radical here. Um, what if we consider amending the civil rights laws to prevent a takeover like this? Um, if it can be proved that a group has the avowed purpose to take over a town to deprive its citizens of their civil rights, perhaps there should be an injunction available that would prevent them from doing this. Um, and I would argue that in accord with what I would say is the emerging gap doctrine from black, the term in yellow should be overruled, and the holding of Beauharnais should be reinstituted. Perhaps we should even consider lowering the standard that's in uh, Brandeis, uh, rather in Brandenburg. I'm almost done. I would also say that creativity should not be held to constitute a religion. Um, there are certain factors that I list here. Um, it, it doesn't address fundamental and ultimate questions having to do with deep and imponderable matters. It's just racism, pure and simple. Why does this matter? Well, there are other neo-Nazis who are trying to take over towns. Uh, Cobb himself has said there are other towns in North Dakota he wants, they'd like to take over. Richard Bunk, another white supremacist, has been buying up properties, for example, in the town of Rachel, Nevada, with a view of taking over governance. Paul Mullet has been trying to buy up property in Tennessee. And these cells can multiply, and they either have the potential of agglomerating all the big neo-Nazi groups together into one geographic area, or they can be in cells throughout the country, lying dormant and waiting for there to be a, an economic crisis or some other calamity where they can you know, rise up and they'll have their infrastructure ready to do whatever damage they want to do. So that's what I have. Um, I, I know we're running short on time. Can I take a couple questions, Charles? So thank you. first of all, thank you very much. So what I propose, because we're running late for time, is there's points of clarification and maybe one or two very short questions, and then we'll hear from uh, Professor Meech. Sounds good. Just a few minutes. Yes. Um, you said about... And then, and then we'll come back later for Q&A. Okay, sounds good. You said about proposing um, legislation about... about um, yeah, that if you had a group that, that had the about right. purpose of taking it What about if it was, wasn't about? What if it was like stealth? That's where it gets more tricky. Um, I don't know that there's a bulletproof way of preventing this sort of thing from happening. But I think, you know, at least we should try our best to have a situation where if COP is trying to do this, we've got some legal remedies. But I agree with you. We've got to be careful. Because a lot come in under the guise of, like, a religion. Sure. And don't, and don't get me wrong. I have concerns about free speech being violated, too. But I also think that we have to worry about people who are victimized by the things that Cobb has done, the, the situation that we had in Skokie. Um, I think there ought to be things that we can do. Yes? Thank you. 
Yes, oh, thank yeah. you. I'm Dr. Palmer. I really enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. What about what Mayor Cox did in New York City when the KKK wanted to march here and he required that they take off their masks if they were going to um, march? Where does, does that fit in in any way in all of this? Because it worked. It cut down the number. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think obviously that has freedom of expression implications. Um, uh, I, I don't know that that's as comprehensive of a solution as I'd like to see, but I think whatever we can do to, um, I, I don't feel good about empowering neo-Nazis to go around and intimidate uh, Holocaust survivors, for example. If we look at the, the, the fundamental uh, rationale behind the First Amendment, if it's to promote democracy and self-actualization, uh, empowering Klansmen or neo-Nazis to go out and shout racial, racial epithets at Holocaust survivors to me, I, I don't feel very good about that. Jeremy Waldron here in New York City at NYU has a, a great book that, that deals with, it's called The Harm of Hate Speech, and he talks about these issues. And I think we need to, to rethink our policy a little bit on that. Maybe we can, we'll have time to talk about that later. I don't want to take any more time now, but I'll leave that thought open and uh, turn it back over to Dr. Small. Thank you very much. So there'll be more time for Q&A after for people who Right now we're having Professor Mitman, he's speaking on misunderstandings of the phenomenon of anti-Semitism in recent influential studies of the Holocaust. And as a non-expert, I have to say that this is and is certainly becoming a more and more vital issue that scholars need to address. There is, a, we were speaking earlier, there's a recent important works by Tim Snyder and others that are extraordinarily controversial and seem to be revising the historical perspective of uh, Holocaust genocide <coughs> studies and issues of anti-Semitism. So it's really an honor to have Professor Mipa here. But I first have to get to my uh, PowerPoint. Okay. <coughs> no mouse, but it's from a very down-to-the-earth uh, issue, uh, chapter which we heard about now, to uh, academia. And um, uh, as I was said by uh, Charles Small in the beginning, in the introduction, uh, one of the topics that I uh, deal with as a uh, historian is also with historiography. That is the way uh, history is interpreted uh, by academics and so we have to deal also with uh, and analyze the discourse 
uh, of historians on certain issues. And uh, when we look uh, at a series of publications, and some very influential ones, in recent five, six, seven years, we can see an interesting shift in the interpretation of the Holocaust. And I think that is something that we have to pay attention to, and in a certain way it is alarming. Uh, and I want, uh, this is something about which I can give a, an annual course, but I'll try to give it in a nutshell here, and uh, uh, with the focus on the issue of anti-Semitism. And it will have to do also with uh, a field of which Gregory Gordon is an expert in, in genocide, and maybe he's also aware of this shift which is happening in recent years. Now, um, the Holocaust is a term. What do we mean by that? What do we understand in this term? Similarly, genocide. But these are different terms uh, if we look into the uh, emergence in the use of these uh, terms. Holocaust is a term which uh, stems in uh, ancient uh, Greek, was used for sacrifice, and since the 16th century has been used in secular language also uh, to uh, denote uh, massacres and uh, huge calamities, uh, and it comes into uh, use for the event of the persecution and the murder of the Jews in the 1950s. It has its own history, we, I will not go into that too much, but there is a very important moment uh, in where uh, François Mauriac writes the introduction to Elie Wiesel's book uh, Night, and first in French and then it is translated in 1960 into, uh, into English. And in this introduction, he uses the term Holocaust in, let's say, a, a more traditional way. And uh, from there on, uh, with the impact of Elie Wiesel's night uh, on the uh, English-speaking world, also the term uh, Holocaust starts uh, to be used uh, more and more, and you can see it in the uh, number of publications already in the 1960s, after 1960, uh, where this term is used. Now, genocide is something entirely different. It was a term uh, coined, as is well known, by Raphael Lemkin in 1943 and published in 1944 uh, as a new term with a special purpose purpose, a legal purpose, to prevent certain things to happen uh, in, in the future. So it was a newly coined term, which was then introduced into, uh, into the law and into the uh, convention uh, uh, by the uh, United Nations in 1948, the Convention for the Prevention of Genocide. And it was explained, the meaning of this term was explained in, uh, in Lemkin's book, as we will see further on. By the way, I gave you some handouts where you can find some of the sources, which I'll mention uh, <coughs> uh, later on in my uh, presentation. 
now, Holocaust is a vague term, and actually also the Hebrew equivalent, Shoah, is uh, <coughs> a catastrophe, uh, and there were other terms at the beginning after 1945, which were used by survivors and others. They don't tell you anything about the event itself. Right? If, I sometimes say, if E.T. would come again, and we would talk about the Holocaust or Shoah, he wouldn't understand about what we are talking. It could be anything, and actually it was used for many other events, uh, not only for the one we are now usually uh, talking about. And the question within this is the relation between Holocaust and genocide. If the Holocaust is one case of genocide or not, and then within that, uh, of course, a major uh, aspect for that is the place of anti-Semitism. Was anti-Semitism a cause for the Holocaust? Well, historians argue about it. Not that anti-Semitism did not play at all, but was it an important reason, yes or no? Uh, because as we know, anti-Semitism existed long before the Nazi uh, regime and did not cause holocausts so there must be some additional uh, uh, an additional uh, ingredient in Nazi anti-Semitism which turned anti-Semitism especially modern anti-Semitism in a driving force now the question is if that uh, if that the additional ingredient has to do something with the Jews or not or is it something very uh, general? Now, uh, what I would like uh, to say is that, uh, and I had a chance to look into the new series published by uh, uh, the, in the Institute here. There are discussions about the term uh, anti-Semitism and how to define it, but I would like to say that uh, for me, and I think historically that would be right to see anti-Semitism as a family name. A family name for different types of uh, anti-Jewishness, uh, in which there are more radical varieties and more moderate varieties. And one of the important things is, and I think that has to do with the misunderstandings today, and I'll come to that uh, uh, back later on is that there is a tendency to identify the Holocaust with only the, radical, the most radical version of Hitlerist Nazi anti-Semitism. And one of the things that happened, and here I'm throwing already one of the conclusions forward at this moment, is that there was this type of anti-Semitism, but it also radicalized other types of more moderate anti-Semitism. So there were different uh, anti-Semitisms, if we can call this, and they were all active at a certain moment, and therefore it was not only a Nazi enterprise, but it was something uh, much bigger behind uh, this. Now, we have to introduce uh, another uh, aspect into this, and that is the development of uh, genocide studies. I mentioned the terminology, 
But it is interesting to see that if we look into the history of research on the Holocaust and research on genocide, we can see that until the end of the 1970s, actually there was hardly research on genocide. There were some uh, studies, but when the term was used and when uh, studies were written, there was an identification of the Holocaust with genocide. There's, for instance, a very interesting book from 1978, I would say, an heroic <laughs> failure of interpretation by Alan Fine, uh, <coughs> accounting for genocide. If you read the book well, you'll see that except for the title of the book and the introduction, the entire book, including the conclusions, are about the Holocaust, and not about the genocidal phenomenon uh, in, in general. And there are uh, other books of that type until around 1980. From that moment on, something very interesting <coughs> happened, and that is that uh, some Holocaust scholars uh, became interested in uh, looking into the more universal implica implications of the Holocaust, and started to develop genocide studies as such. And what we get then together is Holocaust and genocide studies. And then especially in North America, we can see that at the universities, almost all of the chairs and the courses are about Holocaust and genocide, not separate, but in one, right? Which is different in Israel, of course, but also in Europe, in many places. But gradually, this is taking over. So, if you deal with the Holocaust, you have to deal also with genocide. And then, according to this conceptualization, and then the question is, where's the place of the Holocaust within the studies on genocide? <coughs> and uh, here we can see a very interesting um, uh, development. Uh, if we look into uh, this book by Donald Bloxcombe, a British scholar, uh, uh, who wrote his PhD thesis about the um, about the Nuremberg trials in uh, the major trial, uh, International Military Tribunal, in 1945-46, uh, afterwards wrote a book about the Armenian Genocide, but in 2008 published uh, this book, The Final Solution, A Genocide. Right? And if we read, and you have it also in the uh, handout, <coughs> but we can see it here, right, where it states in the very first phrases of this book, between 500 million and 100,000 and 6 million, 200,000 Jews were murdered during the Second World War, an episode the Nazis called the final solution of the Jewish question. The world today knows it as the Holocaust. The subtitle I've chosen for this book, A Genocide, uses the indefinite article not to diminish the magnitude of the Holocaust, but to encourage the reader to think of it as a particular example of a broader phenomenon. So he says, um, it is not to diminish the magnitude of the Holocaust, and that's right. And by the way, the, if you uh, <coughs> wonder about the, the numbers he is using here, 5 million, 100,000 was the uh, number of uh, victims mentioned by Raoul Hilberg in his seminal study uh, for 1961, 6,200,000 by a Jewish demographer, Leschinsky, later on. Uh, according to our knowledge today, the number is somewhere between 5,600,000 and 5,900,000, perhaps closer to 5,900,000. But he takes 
this and he indeed does not diminish the number the magnitude of the murder as such but what is clearly uh, seen here is that he says the Holocaust is the final solution is the murder of the Jews so there is an equation of these terms as being one now the question is if that is right was the Holocaust only or just among <coughs> quotation marks uh, the murder of the Jews and that is a point which I want to argue with but I want to show more of these interpretations right, of the Holocaust which uh, already uh, gives a hint to uh, the diminishing place of anti-Semitism in the overall understanding. If we look into another book by Mark uh, Mazower, a very influential, uh, Mazower, I don't know exactly, he pronounces his, uh, his name, but it is of Eastern U uh, European origin, of course, Hitler's Empire, also published in 2008, and became a bestseller, uh, How the Nazis Ruled Europe, um, where he deals with uh, Nazi Germany's uh, expansion in Eastern Europe and tells a story, his narrative starts actually in 1938, running until 1945. <coughs> and what he actually states there, that the main goal of the Nazis uh, was to control Europe and Hitler was nothing more than a greater German nationalist. Uh, Nazi, colonial, Nazi empire building was a form of colonialism resulting from earlier examples of colonialism which brings us already to one of the trends in genocide studies that there is colonial genocide now the Holocaust as we will see will be uh, integrated into this view of colonial genocide uh, as Lebensraum was in e Europe, e Eastern Europe must lie at the heart of any account of the Nazi Empire. Now, when, when uh, Mark Mazower says this, this is a result of something very important that happened in research on the Holocaust, and that is with the downfall of the communist bloc around 1990, many archives opened. And if until the end of the 1980s, much of the, of the Holocaust and also the interpretation of the Nazi regime centered on Auschwitz because people were uh, deported from Western Europe to Auschwitz and most of research was done from a Western European perspective. Now since 1990, with the opening of archives in Eastern Europe and the ability to go to these places where the murder was carried out in Eastern Europe, right? the pendulum shifts and the focus becomes Eastern Europe for the Holocaust. And Western Europe and Southern Europe and even North Africa is almost forgotten in this picture. So here we see uh, some of these results. And what he says that Hitler's uh, imperial fantasy caused as a byproduct Right? So he wanted to build up an uh, empire and the byproduct of this, including the colonialism, the, the, the Lebensraum where 
Germans could uh, settle in the East, there's a byproduct of millions of Russians, Poles, Jews, and Belarusians who are murdered. Right? So when we see this happening, we can see there is a diminishing. The, the Holocaust loses its central place, and it becomes the Jews in Eastern Europe become one of the uh, of the uh, ethnic groups that were killed in the process of building uh, the empire. <coughs> this can be done only if you ignore uh, the nature of Nazi anti-Semitism and the phenomenon of uh, the historical phenomenon of anti-Semitism uh, in general and therefore it's very interesting to see that uh, that uh, Mazauer in his book does not deal with the persecution of the Jews in Nazi Germany in the 1930s for the first time that he says something about this is around page 80 in uh, in several uh, sentences which are a, a, a gross misinterpretation of what happened in the 1930s. Right? And it's even interesting to see that in the vast bibliography which he, uh, which he uses in his book, and it is an interesting book, I must say, it, it is very sophisticated, and so, but in the vast historiography, one book is not mentioned, and that is a study, a former study by Mark Mazor about Greece where he has a whole chapter of the persecution and the murder of the Jews of Salonika. Now we have to know that more than 90% of the Jews of Salonika, or Thessaloniki, it depends on how you that, were murdered, were sent to Auschwitz. But it doesn't fit into his picture of the Nazi empire in the East, right? Because Greece is not in the East, and not part of the empire building there. So he doesn't quote his own book and his own former study in this in this book. <coughs> um, and then he says that a certain moment the Jews certainly occupied a special place in the political demonology of the Third Reich, without explaining it, what is this special place. That's enough to say this, this uh, half sentence is enough for him uh, in the whole book to, to explain that Jews were also targeted in Eastern Europe. And then he has another interesting phrase. Uh, moreover, says the Germans had somehow stumbled into the great centers of East European Jewry, a consequence that the Germans had not really foreseen. Right? So it is a uh, very uh, they, they just stumbled into this problem in the East. Um, and then at the end, and finally, the Jews constituted only one of the regime's ethnic targets. It was thanks to Nazi and the German soldiers and civilians ended up dying in numbers that were probably not far short of the toll of the final solution. And in another place, he mentioned about six million Germans were also killed uh, due to uh, Hitler's fantasies. Now, that, that is very problematic, problematic, I must say. But it is already clear that the notion of some distinctive uh, character of the persecution of the Jews isn't, uh, isn't uh, there anymore in this book. Now, uh, if we go to one of the greatest bestsellers in, uh, in historiography, 
uh, of recent years, and that is uh, Tim Snyder's book, Bloodlands. I don't know if you've heard about it. Europe between Hitler and Stalin. <coughs> um, I wrote somewhere a very destructive uh, review of his book, and in response I got uh, the soft cover copy from him with a dedication, so it's very interesting. <coughs> Uh, but I'm not the only one, and uh, many other experts, both of Stalin and, and uh, Soviet Russia, and of Nazism, wrote very, very critical uh, reviews of this book. But that was uh, these were written by the experts. Now, in the public arena, especially in Eastern Europe, he has become a hero, and he's constantly in, uh, invited and get, gets prizes all over. Because the main thesis, by the way, after many decades of research, where we can show that it was a host of Germans and Europeans all over that participated in, and actually built up the, the, the program of persecution, created the tools to persecute the Jews, and also to, uh, not only that, but also the Nazi regime in general, that uh, Hitler was supported and he couldn't have carried out his ideas without the initiatives and the creativity of many people in such a short period. The Third Reich existed only for 12 years, you have to remember that. I sometimes tell, tell my students that it took uh, the Jerusalem municipality exactly 12 years to build one tramway line in Jerusalem, right? And here in 12 years something enormous was, uh, was uh, accomplished. Uh, now, what he downplays is this input of the lower echelons and goes back to Hitler and Stalin as a, a kind of a theater uh, playing the marionettes all over, which is impossible or as an interpretation, because otherwise we cannot understand how it all was uh, accomplished. Anyhow, what he says, and that is one of the main conclusions of uh, the book, is towards the end, the Germans and the Soviets provoked one another to ever greater crimes. These atrocities share the place and they share the time. The bloodlands between 1933 and 1945 to describe their course has been to introduce to European history its central event. What is this event? This event is, and in a uh, lecture which he gave at Yad Vashem, I wasn't there, but I got, I got the script. <coughs> he said, what I did is I took uh, the maps of uh, Hitler's killings, Stalin's killings, and the Holocaust, put them together, and I got an area which never existed politically, not geographically, but that is a place where within uh, about 12, 13 years, uh, about 14 million and 100,000 people, uh, civilians, civilians were killed by either Hitler or Stalin. And he calls that the bloodlands, and after introducing these terms, it becomes in his book a reality, as if there were bloodlands. Now, he throws away two million uh, victims of Stalin in the Far East, right? These were not in the bloodlands. And uh, he, and the uh, area of 
uh, of the blood then stretches in the west until Auschwitz because that allows for the inclusion of Jews from Eastern Europe, from Western Europe and Southern Europe who were deported to Auschwitz. But he doesn't deal with Western Europe and persecution. He doesn't deal with economic persecution. He doesn't deal with legal persecution. So what has happened here is that the impact of the concept of genocide which goes back to, uh, the, to Lemkin and the, the early interpretation, the act of murder and not the intention has become central. The very act of murder, which allows for, uh, in a way, for trivialization, all our victims. Now, one of the leading scholars in this field, and you may know him, Dirk Moses, he's the editor of uh, the Journal of Genocide Studies, an Australian scholar now residing in, in Italy, uh, wrote already in 2002 and, uh, and reiterated in 2010, but I will bring the quote from 2002, that where the similarities between the Holocaust and other genocides are more significant than the differences is ultimately a political and philosophical rather than a historical question. Uniqueness is not a category for historical research. It is a religious or metaphysical category. Or in another place he says, well, talking about uniqueness of the or distinctiveness of the Holocaust, that is Jewish identity politics. Uh, which brings us to uh, the um, Oxford Handbook of Genocide Studies, which was published in 2011. And uh, very interestingly, next to another volume, the uh, Oxford Handbook of Holocaust Studies. So here it was separated. And the place of the Holocaust in the Oxford Handbook of Genocide Studies is minimal. Right? There is one chapter written by Christopher Browning, the leading expert on uh, the decision making on the final solution. But it focuses on the murder of the Jews. Right? And there in the introduction, Dirk Moses and Donald Bloxholm, we know the names by now, say the relationship between study of the Holocaust and study of genocide warrants reflection because it has been both negative and positive, characterized variously by synergies, processes of self-definition by mutual exclusion, and occasional resentment. You have to think about the sentence a little bit, but in a simpler way, <coughs> A genocide scholar in Australia recently wrote in 2011 in an article about, uh, about obstacles in uh, genocide research. Our maturing discipline needs to find a sense of collegiality, consensus of terminology, and yardsticks with which to measure, measure scales, dimensions, and degrees of the crime. And here comes the interesting. <coughs> Sentence foremost is the challenge of finding a space for ample compassing and embracing the Holocaust with some comfort. The Judeo side is an ally, not an enemy, and not on the margins. So, something happened in recent years that in genocide studies, in, in a certain stream in genocide studies, not all of them, but the Holocaust has become marginalized. One one case of genocide and genocides, which are there from the beginning of history, and even one of the marginal uh, ones. 
Now, uh, I talked already about Lemkin's definition. I will not read it here. You have it there in the handout. <laughs> the interesting thing is, and the important thing is, that, that Lemkin uh, speaks about nations, <coughs> about nations, and the eradication of nations, either by killing or, uh, or their culture, eradicating their culture. Uh, genocide is directed against a national group as an entity, and the actions involved are directed against individuals, not in their individual capacity, but as members of the national group. Which means, if we take this, and, and this, this interpretation, that uh, anti-Semitism was a, a regular form of social hatred uh, targeting the Jews as a national group. Now we have to remember that Lemkin came from Eastern Europe, from Poland, and uh, experienced the Jewish, uh, Jewish life there in a national context. But many Jews lived in Central, Western Europe and so on, and had other interpretations of uh, Judaism. And what the Nazis targeted was not the, the Jews as a nation as such. So what is wrong with this interpretation? And I come back to this, to the issue that I want to emphasize, that the Holocaust was not just the murder of the Jews, that is another genocide as they want to present it here, that is a case of ethnic collusion, hatred, battle over territory, <coughs> and so on. What happened in the Holocaust, and um, I'll bring the quotes in a moment in order to show it from top to toe, from Hitler to the regular, regular Germans, that, uh, and this, by the way, it was interesting to see in your presentation that it comes up also in, uh, among the neo-Nazis, Jews were seen as the carriers of the Jewish spirit, but the Jewish spirit is not what Jews tend to think that Judaism is about. Jew, uh, Jews are the carriers of the idea of equality, and therefore of liberalism and communism alike, of democracy, uh, of capitalism, or whatever you want, of equality. And uh, therefore, it is not only the physical Jews that had to be exterminated or uh, or eradicated, but it was also the ideas. And one of the amazing things is that it is not only that the Jews were persecuted in the 1930s and that they were to be ousted from the economy and so on, but it was also a process of self-purification. When the uh, Nazi language, when the German Language Association, Deutsche Sprachverein, in 1934 embarks on a campaign to purify the German language from a Jewish influence. Right? Or in Karl Schmidt, the well-known uh, legal philosopher, in 1936 say, uh, says in the annual con uh, uh, convention of, uh, of uh, German, the German legal association, we have to purify the uh, German legal system from the Jewish influence, there is much more than just targeting the Jews, the physical Jews, the individual Jews uh, as such. And therefore we can understand also the burning of books, 
and also the assembling of Jewish libraries and Jewish art and art that was held or was uh, perceived as being Judaized uh, in the 1940s and all brought to Prague, you know, there was a, a central place where they uh, assembled these libraries and art uh, artifacts. Now, which brings us back to Hitler's idea in his very first political writing in 1919, where he comes forward with this idea of Entfernung der Juden überall, a total removal of, of the Jews. What is a total removal? We don't know. Hitler didn't know. But that was his obsession. Right? And, um, and from the very moment that uh, he ascends to power in 1933, that is the target. It is not the final solution. It is getting rid of the Jews and the Jewish spirit in general. We can find it in many documents of, the, of little bureaucrats all over. But if you look at a German soldier writing home from the Eastern Front in 1942, he writes, the great challenge is to exterminate eternal Judaism. The Jews are guilty of everything. Only then will the world find its eternal peace. Right? Or, and this is, uh, uh, I think, one of the most important uh, documents, although it is post-war, that is uh, a testimony written by one of Eichmann's aides, Peter Wieslitzeli, who was active in Slovakia, in Hungary, in, in Salonika, uh, and uh, he testified in the um, Nuremberg trial, and then was tried himself by, by uh, in Czechoslovakia. But he uh, was incarcerated for a while in a cell in Bratislava, and he wrote in November 1946 a lengthy, lengthy uh, testimony. He was asked about his doings in the different countries. But he precedes that with an introduction. He said, you cannot understand what we did without understanding the atmosphere. Now, at a certain place he says the following, the world is uh, what we believe in is, the world is directed by forces of good and evil. According to this view, the principle of evil was embodied in the Jews. This world of images is totally incomprehensible in logical or rational terms because it is a form of religiosity that leads to sectarianism. Millions of people believe these things, something that can be compared only to similar phenomena from the Middle Ages, such as the mania of the witches, or in German, Hexenwahn. What, what was done during the Middle Ages with the witches, actually, in the 16th century? Exercising them, right? So it was here the exercising of the Jewish spirit all over. And we can see it everywhere. The very term which was used, world Jewry, Weltjudentum, or international Jewry, right? the threat shows that the threat was universal, was not limited to Germany or Europe. And therefore the Nazi mission was global and all-embracing, not limited to Eastern Europe, not limited to people only. To, to individuals only. Because these explanations, as we have seen now, <coughs> they also cannot understand or cannot explain why so many non-Germans joined in with the Nazi enterprise. Because this idea, this obsession, became much more general in Europe because the other anti-Semitism, as I said, were radicalized 
by the leading Nazi anti-Semitism. But there is also a misunderstanding of Jewish history. Jews were not just another uh, national group. They were just scattered, wanted to integrate in their countries, had left their own languages in most of the places, had no territorial claim. So it doesn't fit into the patterns which we usually use in genocide standards. And anti-Semitism had deep roots and therefore was a language which could be utilized not only in Germany but also in the uh, other countries that were uh, conquered by the, by the Germans. And it talked to their imagination that we could now deal, there is an historical movement where you can deal with the Jewish pollution. Um, which brings us uh, now uh, to, to the end. So there is a total misunderstanding in these studies which I mentioned of the historical dimension of anti-Semitism, of its overall goals. It is seen as another social hatred, like hatred of other Eastern European groups. The Jews were killed among all these others, and they are not capable of explaining all these aspects which I mentioned of self-purification, of economic persecution, of legal persecution, uh, <coughs> of uh, the first the will to have the Jews emigrate and then later radicalizing it uh, towards murder. Because we have to uh, pay attention also to the fact that while the murder was taking place, also uh, economic uh, persecution continued. And also the other aspects of targeting the Jewish influence continue. So this was this so the, the genocide of the Jews was important, but it was only a part of a much larger mission which uh, the Nazis uh, had put as uh, their mission, and especially of course Hitler leading it, but uh, convincing, and that is a, a very interesting phenomenon which I cannot elaborate on uh, here now, but um, uh, Hitler was one of the, perhaps the um, uh, best examples of what psychologists call transformational leader. That is a leader that is able to mobilize uh, a whole people, a whole group, according to his uh, ideas, and that is of course a different chapter. Uh, so what I claim is here is that um, that there are uh, huge misinterpretations, huge misunderstandings of the anti-Semitism of the Nazis. Now the question is, and with this I'll wrap, this I'll wrap up, the question is, why did this happen? Uh, is it a simple uh, academic misinterpretation? Uh, yeah, we have uh, many varying views, very many uh, Different interpretations of many historical phenomena. So it is not new in, in historiography to find it. But if we look and read this, this book very carefully, we can see that there are issues of political correctness. Why should one group of victims be the more elevated group of victims? So we have, from a point of view of political correctness, to make them all. Uh, the same. Uh, there is the competition of victimhood. But, if you look into Mazower's book, one of the 
when he has uh, in the conclusions, uh, one of the last paragraphs or subchapters is the Jewish question from Europe to the Middle East. So we are suddenly getting from Hitler's empire to Israel and present-day uh, present conflict. Uh, so under the surface, we also find aspects of anti-Israelism, even anti-Semitism. There is a, uh, a British sociologist of genocide, Martin Shaw, who wrote some very important uh, stuff. But one of his recent claims is that we have to downplay intention. We have to look at patterns of genocide, not intention. Because if you go into intention, then there was really something special and different about the Holocaust. If you downplay, uh, downplay um, uh, intention, then we can equate uh, this phenomenon with art. So here I'll wrap up. And there is, of course, much to say more about this. but. This is in a nutshell. Can I start with a question? First of all, I, th I think your your work is, is extraordinarily urge, urgently important, and I, I thank you for the presentation. Um, your last question is, what is the motivation of the scholars for doing this? And you touched on a few issues. I, I just want to say, I don't want to personalize this, but I also I, I need to say it. Um, Professor Snyder at Yale was part of a group of people who were very... But one of the interesting things is that and in September you'll be able to see there is, was a, uh, a conference at the University of Florida uh, some two years ago and will be published now in September where <coughs> our chapters are one after the other. I'm, I'm chapter one, he's chapter two, and he's talking there about the blood lens as Jewish history. But if you read his chapter, right, you can see that he doesn't understand Jewish history because he claims that Jewish history is the fact that uh, Jews were murdered in Eastern Europe. That's not Jewish history. Jewish history is about Jewish society and, and uh, the Jews as actors in, in history. Now, one of the uh, important things, uh, if you analyze uh, Nazism, which you don't find in other cases of genocide, and it is really not downplaying other cases of genocide at all, <coughs> right? Because indeed, uh, uh, murder is murder is murder as such. But if you want to understand historically what happened, there is something amazing because what the Nazi, uh, the Nazi enterprise was about reversing history to, to oust Jews who had integrated into Europe, into European society, to uh, eject them once again. And that is uh, expressed in their obsession with finding Jews everywhere, half Jews, quarter Jews, converted Jews, and so marking them in order uh, for them to be, for the Jews to be seen. One of the uh, amazing things in Eastern Europe, in, in, the, in the occupied Soviet Union, is that Jews had already assimilated in Soviet society in the 20 years between 1919 and uh, the occupation. And when the Nazis entered uh, these areas, they couldn't identify the Jews. So there is an establishment of ghettos 
with and uh, by identifying local Jews with the help of local collaborators, re-establishing a Jewish society in order to murder them, right? A Jewish society which had uh, evaporated already as such in the Soviet Union. So that is an amazing phenomenon which is not tackled by these historians because it counters their interpretation. I have a point of clarification, which can then I lead to one or two questions. Yeah. Um, so I just want to just make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So, so what you're essentially saying is that the Holocaust is unique because um, in addition to just killing a lot of people, they also sought to destroy um, the, the Jewish spirit. And I just want to clarify, when you say the Jewish spirit, is that um, the actual cultural thing that we would conceive of as Jewish culture now? No. It's sort of broader, it's, it's more kind of just a whole idea, which wasn't necessarily Jewish, they just called it the Jewish mm -hmm, spirit. Right. And so in that case, does that mean that it's it's really a point of terminology? Because, you know, in in the Soviet Union, they sought to stamp out capitalism. In America, we sought to stamp out communism. And in Germany, they sought to stamp out, I guess, equality, but they just called it Jewish. And is that really the, the point that it's a, that they, put a religious label on something that wasn't really religious. It has, has nothing to do with the religion <coughs> as such, but uh, Jews, and that is a process which started in the 19th century, are uh, <coughs> more and more uh, um, identified, and can see there are the evil spirit, that we saw it in, in Vizlitzeni's words, right? Jews represented evil, and Jews in, in the uh, National, uh, nationalist or folkish in German uh, is, is the term uh, interpretation were, were seen as the carriers of uh, the ideas of the French Revolution. So it is a reversal of the ideas of the French Revolution. Now, many, and, and of course you have on the one hand Marx representing Jewish communism, and therefore when they attacked the Soviet Union, it was Judeo-Bolshevism, right? That's the terminology that is used. Then you have, in capitalism, you have the Rothschilds, right? And uh, for uh, liberalism, you have in Germany, uh, LaSalle and others. So Jews became to represent all these ideas, although if you come from the perspective of Jewish history, these were Jews who were quarreling with themselves or among themselves, right? And some of them, like Trotsky, <coughs> wanted to distantiate himself entirely from, from Judaism, but in their perspective, right? These were all uh, representatives of some uh, overall Jewish spirit, which was not Judaism. It's not a Judaism as Jews experience it at all. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say that this whole notion that it's the same or, or anti-Semitism or genocide against Jews is the same as, I don't know, any other type of genocide. Is This is the new kind of anti-Semitism that every, everybody's the same, everything's, we're all victims of something. Um, is, is very, very disturbing. But also what you were saying about Professor Snyder, it sounds, it just sounds to me that he just wants to be accepted by anybody and everybody. So he'd rather get awards from the Baltic states than just oh, from Lord. Israel or something. Or like he'd rather be loved by everybody than really deal His with. His next book is uh, uh, 
Actually, also about the Holocaust. He writes now a history of the Holocaust. So we have to see what what will be there. I know it's in the making, but uh, it's not yet published. And also, wasn't it true that they they went into all these little places to try to identify if you were one fifth Jewish? Because they wanted this notion of the Aryan super race, the blonde hair, blue eyes. It's not a heuristic. The, 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 the racial, uh, uh, the, the, the will to establish a, uh, a world based on uh, a racial hierarchy. Right? But in this worldview, there are races which should serve, like the Slavs, the Germans, not to be killed, not all to be only the intelligentsia. Intelligentsia, which happened in, in Poland too. So they were criminal and they killed a lot of people. So there is a lot of genocide going on, right? So, but it is not what I want to show that from the historical perspective, we want to explain and understand it. It's not the issue of, uh, of, of the victims as such. Of course, those who were murdered in old group, that is a, an equal crime as such. But if we um, want to understand the drive behind it, it was different than the drive behind the, the murder of the girls in in, in, in the Soviet Union, for instance, or uh, or the uh, hunger. Uh, if you take Snyder, the uh, the famine uh, in Ukraine in 1933-34, where also a lot of Jews were killed because because of the the fact that they took away. Uh, the the harvest from Ukraine to the uh, to to Moscow and so on. so a lot of people in Ukraine died and it was a horrible crime as such but it had a different motivation and a different, and a different background so you cannot put all the motivations on one uh, level right and so it, I I don't like to go into this issue of uniqueness as such because these are all human <coughs> acts right so several things repeat themselves, but there are also new uh, new stages in history, a new aspect. And in Haka something happened that the, that the borders of evil were set further than we knew them before. So if I may, we can open the questions also to Professor Gordon, and we have about 10 minutes. So if we only have 10 minutes because you say so. At this point, we've got nothing but hardcore people left here. Okay. Um, we're, yeah. we're so far past the normal time, but, so I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to direct my question to uh, Professor Warden, um, and then maybe to both of you, I'm going to pose a, a personal dilemma I'm facing at the moment. Uh, I was uh, waiting for you to mention David Duke. I'm a Louisiana native myself, born and raised, uh, and I actually grew up largely in a town on the Mississippi-Louisiana border called Bogalusa, Louisiana, that was a center of civil rights uh, motion in the mid-60s. It was actually one summer that it was the Selma of that summer, it was Bogalusa. Uh, and uh, as my grandfather was the head of a small Lithuanian Jewish community that was very strongly entrenched in Bogalusa, the Ku Klux Klan was the dominant uh, factor. You, you had to pay attention uh, in your politics if you wanted to stay there uh, to what the group. Uh, their theme, though nominally uh, Aryan and anti-Jewish and anti-Catholic, was so focused on anti-black. Mm. And, and it, it, to su <laughs> such an extent that they're not their propaganda, but their actual action, that they actually 
protected Jewish stores, and I was an eyewitness to this d during turbulent uh, marches where Jewish stores were being targeted by civil rights workers. I'm not expressing any value judgments about any of this. I'm just, it's anecdotally fascinating. Yeah. As opposed to David Duke, who yeah. you called him a representative, yeah. uh, that elected representative. I, I remind you, he came very close to being elected governor of Louisiana. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, some people think it was the emergency money that came from the New York Jewish community to the incredibly unlikely uh, uh, recipient, Edwin Edwards, the highly corrupt, ultimately a decade in prison governor of Louisiana, but definitely not anti-Semitic, uh, that, that saved Louisiana from uh, facing perhaps some of the issues that you, although I don't think that you ever would have gotten away with it. But if you listen closely to David Duke then and now, yeah. he utilized anti-black sentiment uh, to, to create uh, energy for his uh, support but the fact is, if you listen to David Duke, he seems first and foremost to be a Jew hater. That's where his passion yeah. comes from. And, and blacks are only a, a secondary device, whereas the Ku Klux Klan um, in Louisiana was really focused on blacks and kind of Jews were a corollary part of their philosophy and they were actually not so unfriendly to Jews in reality. These are, I don't know what to make of this, but these are different strands of, 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 uh, of the overall theme you're talking about, and I wonder if you differentiate or can draw any conclusions of, no, on it's that valid, basis. It's, it's a really valid point. In my study of these uh, neo-Nazi groups, uh, especially the National Socialist Movement, uh, I think they look at Jews, they're, in a way they're more scared of Jews, uh, in their own sick ideology, I think they think that Jews are more um, if you will, sly and intelligent and behind the scenes and controlling things. Whereas, in, again, their own sick ideology, they think that blacks... And in a, and in a crowd, hard to tell apart from them. Right. The very thing that exactly, the Professor exactly Mitchell that was point. talking about. It, it, it's the same kind of thing, that they're, they're more dangerous because they're more hidden. Uh, and, and the very things that you were talking about in terms of their spirit and all that, when I look at these neo-Nazi movements, they completely hate that aspect in their own sick minds of Judaism and Jews in the United States. And I think in many ways, they, I think they look at, at, at African Americans as less intelligent and, if you will, under, under the control of Jews, that there's, remember I, I mentioned the mud races. They see the Jews, I think, in a way as the leaders of the mud, of the mud races. And so the anti-Semitism, I think, is the most virulent uh, aspect yeah. of their hatred. Yeah, I, 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 I believe that the Klan, to a large extent, the anti-black, was based on ignorance and about the fear, at least as somebody below us in class, and, and the fear that they would be brought up. And then when it actually happened and it was forced on them, a tremendous number of them gave up the ship and were perfectly comfortable with, with African Americans. I, I think that's right. And I think the Klan, and, and you know, the Klan is, while it's a marginal part of this um, larger group dynamic, it's a smaller part of it now, yeah. and, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think the Klan was, how did the Klan come this, up? It this came, is, in, in many ways, related to what Professor Mickman was saying in certain aspects. Yeah, the Klan came up in reaction to blacks being uh, emancipated in this country, the Southern defeat in the Civil War, um, somewhat similar to what Professor Mickman, we can make parallels, talking about what happened in the Enlightenment to Jews, and how Jews were 
uh, emancipated and liberated, and the Nazis came in and they wanted to reverse that. The Klan had, had a similar motivation. But I think these neo-Nazi groups, they look at Adolf Hitler. They look at the Nazis, and just as Professor Minkin was saying, that the anti-Semitic roots of the Nazi movement and of the Holocaust, they are incredibly strong in the neo-Nazi movement in the United States today. So I think there's, there's definitely a parallel, and I appreciate you bringing it up, because mm -hmm. it does show the degree to which Jews are the targets mm -hmm. of these people. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Just to... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll take off, so I'll, I'll, I'll get back. No, 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 no. Well, I have a dilemma. <laughs> a, a week from now, I'm going to be in the palace of King Juan Carlos of Spain as part of a trip of Jewish leadership being invited to visit the Spanish government. And I have been delegated to make, as one of three speakers in front of the king, to make the speech about why we as an American Jewish delegation uh, are in Spain. I just learned this a few hours ago. So I haven't, I've got to do my homework and figure out exactly where Spain is on uh, <laughs> Israel relations and so on. I'll do that. That'll, that I only have three minutes, it won't take long. But, but, but obviously part of the idea of this mission is to promote good relations. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a Jewish foreign policy, bald-faced Jewish foreign policy. Uh, uh, it, it's APAC to foreign governments, and I'll not, I'm not going to pretend it's anything different to anyone. Uh, and I think it makes sense to, talk, even though there are 5,000 assimilated Jews left in Spain today, and, and not much in the way of any Jewish culture, uh, it makes sense to pay high homage to the extraordinary uh, history of Jews in France and the amazing culture that existed in Spain, the amazing culture that existed there for, for several centuries, something almost, almost akin to what Greek culture uh, presented in the short period that it existed in a, in a small area. Uh, and, and it was very interesting, as you know, because sometimes it was at the risk of Muslim intolerance and sometimes at the risk of Christian intolerance. There were really three groups that could be in any combination against each other <coughs> or for each other at any time. And I think I have to make some kind of reference to the darker side of that time, uh, without because otherwise I'm whitewashing and, and, and pandering to a point that's that's intolerable. Uh, so I wanted some guidance from you as to how to make reference. This is my dilemma. How do I make reference to to the difficult periods that Jews faced? There were some not not just the expulsion of the Inquisition, but there really were some pogroms that took place along the way, and, and then there would be a flourishing of activity and prosperity, and the Jews picked as major figures in the government, and so on and so forth. So. <coughs> I will, I will be able in three minutes, like you have there, <laughs> to, uh, to make your contribution. No, I, I, I would trust neither of you to yeah. do anything in three minutes, <laughs> but I have to. Yeah, it's, it, a, it's your problem, not mine. <laughs> but, uh, but indeed, uh, uh, during uh, these years, the 1930s, 1940s, it's especially problematic because on the one hand, uh, Nazi Germany helped Franco in the uh, uh, in the war in the uh, war 1936 uh, 39 uh, war <coughs> against the Republicans uh, and yet uh, 
during the 1940s, uh, quite a number of Jews found refuge in Spain. Right? So he was a fascist and an ally, but up to a certain uh, point, and uh, he and uh, Franco let uh, Jews in. So for for this period, it's it's a problem, right? <coughs> and uh, well, history is not always simple. You cannot uh, simplify it to one center, and, and and that is. By the way, also something which I think is important when we talk about anti-Semitism and, and your mentioning of the Jews as being the leaders of the mud people, right? that, that in anti-Semitism is something uh, which has to do with, with the history going back to the beginnings of Christianity, of course, that Jews are despised, but they are also um, admired. Jews are strong and weak. Jews are ugly and tempting, right? So there is this all the time going on already in the, in medieval times, and especially in the in the uh, Nazi period, right? It, the, the persecution has to do with with the admiration and the the fear for the for the power that the Jews somehow have. And they, they are not just a uh, low-level uh, race uh, yeah, which should be subjugated. So, so this is a special dimension. Quick quick thought, maybe what you could say in your three minutes, and I, I will definitely ask and get your question. Um, there was obviously a terrible time in Spanish history, the Inquisition, as we're talking about the expulsion, uh, but then Spain, uh, over the centuries, uh, if you will, recovered from that, uh, and, and even in a period as dark as, as uh, you know, the, the time of World War II and Franco, uh, the, the Holocaust was not carried out in Spain, uh, and, and there has been, you know, a continuing good relations. We now risk the possibility of a new wave of anti-Semitism, as there is anti-Israelism uh, going on right now, I suspect, in Spain, and Spain should put this all in context and not let that happen, that it has a history of overcoming that. I think in three minutes you could probably say that very powerfully. Um, thank you, yes, sir. Just my question um, concerns uh, uh, targets yes. of KKK. Yes. If it's for black, yes. was born for against black, yes. or Jewish, or the Jewish are now the second target, and what about the Indians, the native Indians? Yeah. You know, because we are, we all all time speaking about black Jewish, black Jewish, but what's about the Indians? Great question. And you know that protest in we in on September twenty second that I made reference to in my presentation. That was led primarily by Native Americans. Lakota. That, yeah, the Lakota who were in North Dakota. I was wondering about why that. Wasn't some part of the narrative, especially when I heard the oil patch part? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as Professor Stone alluded to, um, as it was already, I, I had you know more time than you know I, in my presentation that I, I wanted. Um, <laughs> I wish I could have gotten into that. And there are probably some other areas I would have appreciated talking about. Um, but absolutely, you know, the, in, in the view of these neo Nazis, these are also part of the mud races. I, I don't make light of that. It's especially powerful given the strong Native American. Uh, history and culture that we have in our state, um, that these people are coming in and they would exclude 
people who've been there for, for centuries, but not millennia. Um, but I, because this is a, um, a talk more about anti-Semitism, we're here for the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, my main point was that it's, it's fine to talk about anti-Semitism in Spain or Iran uh, or these other places, and I've done it myself for this institute, but that we, we need to look inside of what's happening in this country and realize that anti-Semitism is, I, I almost view what these people are doing as a sort of a latent or dormant movement that if the circumstances are right, if we have another world war, if we have another Great Depression, these folks will be in a position to take what they've done now and build on it. And that worries me greatly. That said, it should worry Native Americans, it should worry African Americans, it should worry Hispanics, because they hate all of them. This sick, racist ideology somehow believes that because the color of your skin is white, and because you are not of a certain religion, that you are superior, it's the very thing that Professor Mikul was talking about, you are superior, this, this, this notion of being an, an Aryan race, and it's the social Darwinism of our race. If your race thrives, one of the reasons that they hate Jews so much is they think that it is, it is a, an explicit part of being Jewish that you want to destroy everything that's Aryan. Uh, but at the same time, it defiles them to have Native Americans and Hispanics and blacks and other races around them. So I'm not making light of it. It's just that I wanted to focus on the fact that this, this type, this strain of anti-Semitism that is homegrown in our own country is something that we we, we need to be aware of, and, and this pioneer little Europe movement scares me, it really does. Can you read the context of the, what does it say about the anti-Semitism in Leaf, that it doesn't somehow include the kind, that the Lakota have gone missing from that part of the narrative that we're ignoring? That. <laughs> this country committed genocide against Native Americans. I mean, let's let, we want to talk about genocide, um, and let's not make light of that. Um, and I and, and in no way do I want to say that all these genocides, whether it's the Armenian genocide, whether it's the Rwandan genocide, whether it's the Holocaust or the genocide of Native Americans in this country, they are things that we as human beings they touch all of us. The the, the spark of our humanity that we all have in common is is at risk of being lost by the kind of ideology that gives rise to these genocides. So in no way am I making light of it, and I, as an American, am ashamed of the policy that, that my country had vis-a-vis -vis Native Americans. So in another forum, I could spend a ton of time talking about that, and I, and I, and I hope you know, maybe we'll get a chance at some other point to do that. But today, I want to focus on the fact that this Jew hatred that exists right here in our own country, right in our neighborhoods, in our backyards, is something that we have to be concerned about. Uh, we've had the benefit of from two uh, different types of orientations. Absolutely great speakers today. Uh, I thank the speakers for being here and giving us this much time. I thank the hardcore audience that uh, stayed till the end. Uh, in order uh, not to give rise to any lawsuits against the Columbia Law School, I'm going to suggest that we disband now because I believe the sidewalks are starting to get slipperier, and I don't want to be personally or institutionally accused of subjecting you to greater danger than would otherwise be the case. 
Thank you very much, and Charles, congratulations on a really uh, putting a terrific program together. Yeah, thank you.